Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 112 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and I recently had the opportunity to speak on the Business of Podcasting panel at Startup Week Columbus. And if there's one thing I noticed, it's that a lot of people out there are interested in starting their own podcast, but aren't sure where to start. So we've decided to put together a podcast startup package with everything we've learned about building and growing a podcast to help you get there. You can pre-register for the Conquering Columbus podcast startup package now by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26. We interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high flying VC backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more and check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mark Swanson with us, and Mark is the president of Cup of Joe's and Stoff's Coffee Roasters here in Columbus, and Mark runs several coffee shops in the Ohio area. We're really excited to have him here today to talk all things coffee and what it takes to own your own shops here in Columbus. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Mark. Hey, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you thinking of us. Yeah, we're excited to have you here today. What's, you know, how's your day been so far? Pretty good, actually. I had a really productive day, which is awesome. <laughs> That's always good. It's always good. So one of the first places we want to start is just let's talk a little bit about how you ended up in Columbus and how you got into coffee. Cool. Well, uh, I grew up in Northeast Ohio and went to Ohio State. And uh, after, after OSU, I worked in a phone room. 
and you know, the job wasn't very good. I wrote scripts and managed the sales team uh, and wrote some parts of the training manual. But what was awesome about it was the people. I met a lot of really smart people and I had some very wise bosses and, and, and I had one, one supervisor who um, was kind of reprimanded me one day and said, you know what, man, you're a good guy, you're doing good work, but I just want you to remember, never forget where you came from. You've moved up here and always remember that. And I swear to you, that was 30 years ago or something. <laughs> I still remember that to this day. And I think that's kind of a guiding principle for, for me and my team. So let's talk about a little bit about that, that phone experience, like kind of what was it about it that kind of shaped your later career and um, any details, more granular details besides just that statement that kind of resonates with you? Uh, honestly, it gave me some management experience. It, it helped me understand HR. It helped me understand uh, equality in the workplace. Um, you know, it was a very large company, so they really had a lot of really intensive training, which helped a lot. And then my roommate uh, in college was working at Stops when it first opened, like right after it first opened. And they wanted to expand their wholesale business. So the founder, Tom Griesmer, got a hold of me and we sat down and of course I didn't really like my job. <laughs> so things worked out and he hired me and we built a, a wholesale business from nothing to you know, a multi-million dollar business, over 300 accounts in, in probably 25 states and uh, we roast quite a bit of coffee out of our roasting facility out on the west side. And that's where our main office is. And so we've, we've really grown that from just roasting outside of that Stoffs Grandview location, or roasting in there and, and moving it out to the, to the roastery with like 7,000 square feet and actually some room for our guys to move around. Yeah, can we get a little more granular into that? I mean, I wanna talk a little bit about you know, when you're, growing a, when you're growing a company like that and you're growing that wholesale business, kind of what were some of the key things you focused on early on to grow your brand? So I'm going to give away our sales secret. When we got into it, basically there were no internet, uh, 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 there were no tools for this type of stuff. And the things that were available at enterprise level were so expensive, they were prohibitive from, for us to actually purchase. So I just went to the library. And I copied coffee shops all over the country. I sat at a, a copy machine, made copies, and then I'd call people. And my goal was, uh, at the time, because they called it gourmet coffee, and a lot of folks didn't really understand what that was, my goal was to get it in someone's hands. Because freshness was the first key, quality's the second. And I think you notice that with bread. If you have Wonder Bread that's fresh and fresh bread from like Omega or, or one of the bakeries around town, like Angry Baker, Dan the Baker, any of those folks, what you're gonna find is a huge difference in quality. So what I did is I would hit the phones and I never said, can I speak with the decision maker? You know, I never did that. If I talked to a barista, I just thanked them for their time, I asked them for their name, and then I would sneak them a, a small gift of coffee and just tell them how much I appreciated their time, how valuable they were to me, that returned in spades. And, and when people would call me, uh, I would always make sure first, here's the sales secret, do you like our coffee? And if they like our coffee, I can do anything else from there. And over the years we've learned, you know, site selection, lease negotiation, layout design, we can do uh, training, we do all of those things. But first, if a customer really enjoys our coffee and we've really met their needs, I know that they have longevity. And now that we have 25 years of that business, I can tell you it worked. So you're showing up at these locations in person and then leaving a sample of coffee when you left? Both. So sometimes I would, uh, I would hit the road and show up in locations, um, and then other times I would just mail, just ship at UPS. And then when you show up in person, you were just saying, like, here's my number on the coffee thing as well, and then mm -hmm. they could contact you. Business card to. and a little catalog, but never really hard sell because, once again, I think the proof was in the cup. It was very simple. If, the, if they enjoyed the coffee and they were starting to get into specialty coffee, I at least had a, a foot in the door. Yeah, and that's a really interesting concept. And I'm kind of curious, like, so Josh and I both work in the software space. And you know, nowadays, a lot of companies in the software space. And I'm kind of curious if there's a similar model or a way you could approach it in a way where you call someone and offer them a free trial or some other way. Do you think that that strategy would work with something like software that isn't as hands-on, isn't as, hey, I can put it in my hands and taste it and smell it and, and get a real good feel for it that way? I'm not sure. It just depends if the software is you know, hyper-focused on the need of that one customer. So, for example, if you came to my company and had an affordable scheduling program and said, hey, why don't you try this for three months? 
uh, that would be something because I don't know if you know scheduling programs are super expensive uh, to to lease. And uh, if if something like that happened and it was affordable and it wasn't some sort of enterprise solution, but for a smaller company, that might work. Yeah, and I'm not sure how how fair of a question. I mean, your background's on software, so right. it's kind of yeah, hard yeah, to yeah, answer. But I think <laughs> that um, just from maybe a high level view and theoretical standpoint, it's more or less you're just offering value and then understanding that in return, if you deliver enough value, people are going to reciprocate and understand and want to want to use your product. And then you have loyalty, and I think that's the most important point because. The more loyalty you have, believe it or not, it's not just about revenue, the more you learn. Because you get closer and closer and closer to your customer. And the closer you get to your customer, the more you learn about what they like, the better you can enhance their experience, either way, retail or wholesale, uh, and the better way you're going to learn and also share, collaborate a little bit. Tell them the mistakes you've made and tell them the successes you've had. I'm sure that you know your wealth of knowledge on coffee, and I want to get more granular into that, but I think I just want to lay out the story a little bit more about how the business built and how your career built. So you began to build up this wholesale model, and then what does the timeline look like? Like what age are you when you first start, and then what age are you when you get done, and then how did things evolve from that standpoint? I was 26. I think by the time, so 93, uh, by 1999, we started opening stores. Uh, but we had expanded this Grandview store from an 800 square foot shop to it's about 4,000 square feet now. Uh, so, so there was a massive expansion in wholesale first. Uh, and then uh, we were able to, to grow the business from there. We bought Cup of Joe. Um, and then uh, we opened you know, multiple stores after that. How many locations was Cup of Joe when you bought it? Was it just one? Or? It was, I think it was two. And then we, expand, yeah, we expanded that. And over the years, you know, we had really long leases, and some of the leases ran out. And they opted for uh, higher-paying tenants. So it would have been, like, for Lennox, that store closed. We loved that store. We loved the community. We liked our neighbors. Uh, but the, the rent would have been two and a half times as high, and we couldn't afford that. We're a coffee shop. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of places you're seeing that in Columbus today with how the, uh, how the rent market's been going. But... Was there any time early on when you guys are first growing it out? I mean, you jumped from your job to coffee company. Uh, was there any point in there where there was, you know, stressful moments or challenges early on that that took a hard time overcoming? Of course. Right? <laughs> it was stressful the whole way through because, you know, try at, in, in the early 90s, really it was Starbucks that was educating the market, which, by the way, a lot of folks ask me if I like them or don't like them. I love Starbucks. First of all, they're a good company and they're good to their people. I know they've had some hiccups, uh, but overall, if you look at the long view of Starbucks, they've done a good job. I don't want to be ad for them, but because uh, they do hurt us when they open up across the street uh, slightly. But I don't believe that they've been a detriment to our growth. Uh, I don't believe any other coffee shops have been. Uh, we have some great roasters in town. I don't know if you're familiar with all of them, but we have some high quality folks roasting coffee in this city. And that's pretty awesome. It's like it's like the uh, uh, brewing beer, and you know we have whiskey and and all of that stuff that's happening. I think there's room for a lot of entrepreneurs to do these things. So let's kind of talk about where you guys are at today, like number of locations, both on the Cup of Joe side and Stoffs, um, and then maybe we'll get more granular into um, the company's status in terms of like employees and things like that. Sure. What your visions are? Uh, right now we have uh, locations all around town, so we have. Uh, Cup of Joe in Clintonville and one downtown that's also a mojo which has food and, and has a bar. Uh, we also have stops at the North Market, German Village, uh, Franklinton in the Idea Foundry, uh, Discovery District in the View on Grant, uh, Grandview, and German Village. So we have seven locations and we're working on one in Victorian Village now and we're looking at a couple more sites. Our growth in that way is more organic these days. I think you know you guys may have known we've closed a few locations, and I think that in some of those locations, the mistake we made uh, wasn't that they were bad locations, but long term, they probably weren't the best spot for us, and uh, so that meaning the landlord, you know, outgrew us and needed a higher paying tenant, or perhaps a location like on the cap at 670 just didn't work out. They're great landlords, but. We are kind of at the end of our life cycle there. So now what we do is we keep looking for places that mimic or look a little bit more like Grandview. In other words, up and coming, uh, a place that we could support and they could support us. 
So when we went to Franklinton and worked with uh, Christopher Celeste, uh, who owns that building, and uh, Alex Bandar from the Idea Foundry, you know, our first thought was just to put coffee in the Idea Foundry. And then the talks kept going and going and going, and, and Christopher made an investment, we made an investment, we were able to put a footprint there in Franklinton, and that community's responded. And then with the View on Grant, another one, you know, that area is coming up. They built, Solov and, and his partners, uh, you know, JBAD did that site. They built a beautiful building. And they also uh, really wanted a, a good amenity there for their residents and for the neighborhood. And we're seeing it happen there too. So, so from now on, when the site pops up, if it works for us, we're very happy. But we don't have like a multi-unit strategy, as it were. So with that kind of vision, and you're looking at all these different areas that are up and coming, what besides Franklin and the other areas that you've already kind of settled on do you think are um, up and coming in Columbus? Do you have any particular feelings or emotions on that area, or do you have any thoughts? Well, obviously Franklinton's only going to keep going. It's, it's awesome, and the community there is really, really great. Uh, Discovery District as well. I think you see a lot of properties around there selling. Uh, you know, there's so many students... I can't remember what the number is, but they, someone told me it was about 60,000 full and part-time at Columbus State. That's a pretty huge deal for us because we're gonna get all those folks studying. We're gonna have business meetings there. Uh, so, so that's really gonna help our, our, our shop there. In terms of other parts of town, we locked out in Victorian Village. That's, of course, that, that's probably number one on everybody's besides Short North Italian Village, uh, uh, Grandview and things like that. Of course, Italian Village is, is really attractive to us. Uh, Worthington, you know, there's kind of, you know, the downtown Worthington area would be cool. So those are kind of places, but a lot of times these things pop up, they weren't on our radar, and we're just talking to friends and, and, and friends of friends, and they bring up a site, and we travel there, and we look around, and we go, wow, that's really cool. And now are you at the point where they're requesting you guys, and you don't have to reach out as much, or is it still that... You know, you're kind of reaching out and saying, "Hey, can we get the space?" Like, I feel like maybe there might be more, more pull for the Stoffs brand at this point in Columbus instead of pushing. I it. honestly don't know. I I think that we, and I'm not trying to be humble. What I'm saying is, I I think that, you know, we knew a few people and they liked Stoffs and we had good relationships and good conversations and those things happen. Uh, going forward, you know, we'll look at places and see what's up. And you know, we have a a, a friend who's in real estate. And I talk to him pretty regularly about what's happening. I also am on speed dial for a lot of things, you know, email newsletters and stuff like that. So when something pops up, obviously we're looking at it. But we're also lucky that we have a lot of customers who own property and stuff like that and would like to have us uh, take a look. It's a both. That's, your, that's a short answer. It's a good answer. <laughs> it's a good answer. No, I like it. I think what I want to focus on there is the fact that you mentioned, like, relationships. And I think relationships come up a lot on our podcast in that, you know, a lot of the people we find that are successful have focused on building beneficial, mutually beneficial relationships and building real relationships with people. Uh, do you find that that's been a big part of your team's success? And then how are you, I mean, are you actively pursuing these relationships or are you just bumping into people and then talking to them further and further and finding ways you can help each other? Um, I think it's the latter. Uh, what happens, and, and I think this is one of the great things about Columbus, this is a small town feel in a sense because a lot of people know each other um, maybe not best friends or whatever but people see each other around town and there's always like two or three degrees of separation from just about anybody in this town not the cliche six degrees of separation so I think that you find that uh, if if you're a, I guess I'd like to say if you're a good citizen you do right by your team you do right by your business and your community and, and like-minded folks, they just tend to uh, get together. And then let's talk maybe about the coffee process a little bit. For those who are naive or don't know as much about it, um, well, how, what do things look like from you guys from the beginning of your you know, value chain to the end and that distribution? And well, I think uh, you know, we, we visit Origin, we travel around, um, we make some relationships, but uh, you know, we don't call it direct trade or anything, I know folks use those terms. Hey, I think it's a, an awkward term. I mean, I know people that I buy from, you know, there are farms I buy from. I brought you uh, this Colombian from basically a, 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 it's a blend of green coffee from 46 uh, uh, farmers. And, you know, last year I was in Costa Rica and I was at a cupping table and, and uh, I, we did 30 coffees and there were probably 
you know, eight of us there. And I just said, I'll give anybody 50 bucks if they tell me that this coffee isn't the best on the table. And everyone agreed. And it turns out when we flipped the cards, because it's blind, we found out this was something called La Pastora, and it's from uh, Co-op Terrazoo. And it's a blend of dozens of farms. And it beat micro lots down the line. So for us, when we're, when we're looking at supply chain and we're looking at you know, where are we going to get our coffee from, uh, it's got to be a certain grade, specialty grade, which is, you know, that's clinical and I could go into that. I won't bore you with details, but it's the highest grade. Um, and then we, it has to taste good. And when it tastes good, I, I think when you travel to these farms, what you find out is these folks have been growing coffee for 100 years. They know so much. And what you're doing is you're buying at a farmer's market then. You're actually looking the farmer in the eye. They're asking you around the cupping table what you like. They can tweak their, you know, if you buy coffee from them, they can tweak things over the years to kind of hit those flavor profiles. And so, so then once you make those agreements and you figure out how to get it out of country, which takes a lot of people, a lot of hands touch the product before it gets to you. Uh, you want to secure it, so I secure as much coffee as I can. Um, I have booked out probably 80% of, of our, our need for the next year. And, uh, and once you do that, then it's all about bringing it in and fine-tuning it in, in the roast process through profile roasting. That makes sense? Yeah, I guess a few uh, maybe like terminology in it that I'm curious about. When you say secure it, what exactly are the semantics behind securing it? Well, there are different ways to do it. Um, you know, so companies that sell commercial grade coffee will just buy a, a certain you know, lots of coffee, in other words, a number of bags. So if they buy five containers at 250 bags a container, and they'll just secure that coffee for, for, for a year or maybe from those farms for several years, and they contract it. So what we do is we find each individual farm or co-op uh, that we like, and then we'll, we'll contract that coffee. So that they know for the next year they're selling us coffee and they're getting a certain price, and that way uh, everybody's happy. They know that they're not fluctuating with the, fluctuating with the market anymore, and they know that uh, uh, we're, we're taking it in. If we like it that year, we'll keep going. How does it work on your guys' end as your volume goes up and down? I mean, have you guys been fortunate to where your volume just continues to increase or at least? At it increases, so yes. So that's, that's why I always do 80%. So it changes every year, right? So the actual number of bags of coffee we're buying are more, but I just keep securing 80%. Plus the 20% that we leave open is always like, someone's got three bags of the best coffee you've ever had. You know what I mean? And you go, oh my gosh, I gotta have that coffee. And we did that when we were in Columbia last year. We were there last October and we cup, we were at a cupping table and I said, this is amazing. It tastes like butterscotch and I hate, you know, it's not like purple basil, blah, blah, blah. But it really had this really profound butterscotch note. And, and so I said, hey, I want this, Steve. And he goes, I only have three bags. I said, we'll take them. <laughs> so that's what happens, and you're able to buy those cool coffees and then just sell them at, at the stores and let people know that it's a limited-time offering. Yeah. Like the Colombian I brought. That's right. limited. Perfect. Well, I'll definitely have to try it. So I think it's interesting, you know, that there's so much – I guess community in coffee, even to down to the farmers and the roasters, right? So like you're going down to Columbia, you're visiting these people, looking in the eye. I think it's something that's, I don't, I don't want to say completely unique to the industry, but it's definitely unique to the coffee experience. And how has the coffee community in Columbus changed as you've grown? And you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of great roasters in town. Do you kind of see that trend continuing? Absolutely. I think that um, we're roasting the best coffee of our lives. Tommy and Rich, who, who are roasters, and of course, our founder, Tom Griesmer, still roasts at, at a couple locations. Everybody's roasting the best of their lives because it's a combination of science and art. So ex for example, you're roasting something, you know what that's like, right? It's a certain temperature, a certain amount of time, right? A certain weight. But there's another piece to it, which is dialing in, knowing the coffee so well with having so much experience with it, uh, knowing it so well that you can dial in different flavor profiles. If you look at all the brewers around town and you see people who've been in it a long time, and, and I don't mean long time like 20 years, but even, even five or six years, you watch their beers improve. And their beer was good to begin with. I mean, I, I, I can tell you there's so many people who are great, but I've seen them get even better, and that's amazing. Same thing happens in coffee. So what you're going to see is uh, roasters around town as they become more familiar with different uh, cultivars, which are different types of coffee, 
um, and, and they are familiar with different processing methods and they know how to manipulate them in the roaster, you're going to see their coffees getting better and better while they were already great to begin with. So you bring in the beans originally and then you, how, how does that distribution process work? So like you are sourcing them from the farmer and then you have relationships with different roasters. Um, obviously you're delivering the beans to them for them to roast them. Am oh, I no, completely no, no, missing no. this process? So, so only a few roasters buy green from us uh, and home roasters too. Now what happens is, so the coffee gets on a probably a Maersk ship because they own the sea over here and it goes to a port. And typically we get our stuff out of New Jersey and it gets there, it gets, it's logistics at that point. It's off the ship into a warehouse, it's got our name on it, and we, we pull from that, and, and you pay a little carry fee. Right, and then you roast it here. And then we, when we get it, it's green and, and, and processed, and then we roast it, and then we package it and distribute it. So after it's been roasted, that's when you're able to actually turn it into coffee. Then yes. I'm, I'm completely oh, you got to come, come out to process. our roastery so I can show you. Yes, the the uh, processed green bean is is hard as a rock. Uh, it doesn't really have any natural pests. Uh, it is uh, good for about six months. Uh, probably it's good longer, but you see a little flavor degradation over six months. And uh, so, but we turn our inventory every 35, 40 days. So. What would happen if you just chewed on that before roasting it? Would you still get the caffeine It would experience? break your teeth. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Josh, it's, it's that hard. It's like, it's like a rock. Challenge accepted. He's, yeah. he's looking for the quickest caffeine. Now, if you chew it at, at the farm, if you pick it off the tree and it's, it's still unprocessed, it's soft. But they're two seeds. So they're like little seeds that are soft. Probably wouldn't taste very good at that point either. Actually, it's a little, it's interesting. It's sweet. It does, of course, you wouldn't want to. Right. <laughs> so, and for Josh, I know we talked about blends and, and you said, I think we called them micro pots earlier? Micro lots. Micro lots. Um, what's the difference there? I know, I think a blend is just multiple beans from different farms, That's, that, right? Well, multiple beans in a roast. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this coffee that I, I brought here from Columbia is, is 46 Farmers raw coffee, green coffee that was, uh, blended and, and, and processed together. Right. Uh, when, when we do a blend at the roasting level, it's after roast. So we'll roast three different coffees and blend them together to get a certain flavor profile. Micro lots are, are a unique term in that, uh, in a, and I think the best way to describe it is, if the three of us had a big peach uh, uh, stand, big peach farm, and we started tasting, tasting peaches in one area, and we went, wow, these are the best peaches I've ever had. And they're so much better than the things like 100 yards away. We'd walk around and we'd figure out where the end of that flavor profile is. And then we'd mark it off and say, A, we'll try and replicate this, right? Mm -hmm. B, this is going, these peaches are going to be more expensive because they are of higher quality and it's harder to care for them. They have a different microclimate and they're amazing. So that's kind of what happens in microlots. Uh, sometimes microlots are exactly just one farm. Uh, but it's it's rare. Usually they're just different parts of a farm. If you think of a, a volcano in Guatemala, there's going to be like hundreds of microclimates on there just because of the size and, and the density of the coffee at the elevation and the sun and the rain and the shade. All of those things along with the soil content uh, kind of come together to uh, inform the quality of the final product. And on that note, I mean, we're talking about a volcano in Guatemala, but it made me think of environmental issues. And as the environment changes and we've got climate change and global warming and, and different, you know, different changes to the environment. I mean, have you ever had ran into trouble with like a weather issue or something like that, limiting your supply? How do you handle something, Absolutely. Like, something like that? Uh, hurricanes, uh, La Nina, El Nino, all of those things can affect coffee. But the long term climate change is affecting coffee and we can see it. Uh, you know, the higher grown coffees are still pretty, pretty good, but it's a small percentage of the coffee. What, what we buy is actually a very small percentage of the coffee produced in the world. So as climate changes at the lower levels and puts a lot more pressure and stress on the plants, uh, it may get to a point where some areas are no longer sustainable with coffee. Where are all the places that coffee's taken you? Like, and what are some of the most memorable ones? Um, I've been to... Java, Bali, and then everything else has been Central and South America. So Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, uh, Colombia, Mexico. What have been some of the most unique experiences in some of those places? I mean, some of those places sound like they might have 
um, some dangerous terrain or maybe in the early nineties when we went to Nicaragua, uh, I was riding in a, in a, a four wheel drive with a farmer and we were going to look at an eco mill, but it was way off the beaten path. And all he said was, has anybody fired a weapon in the truck? And I was the only one who raised my hand and he goes, lift up the blanket in the back. And so I lifted up and it was an AK and he said, I go, not that kind. <laughs> That's what I said to him. And he goes, look, if we get pulled over, you grab it. Safety's on. Do not touch the trigger and act like you know how to use it. And that, I don't know if he was messing with me, but, you know, Nicaragua. I mean, Doesn't sound I, like I, he was I, messing I with know. you. <laughs> uh, another time, a friend of mine, a, a guy I poured coffee with, he and his wife, my wife, went to Nicaragua. And, and this farmer ended up becoming a good friend of ours. And we were pulling out of the uh, airport and we got pulled over by the police and basically had to pay him. Nicaragua just sounds like a place I wouldn't go. Actually, it's <laughs> really beautiful, and the people are awesome. And I think that's the other thing that's really rewarding about the job is when you when you get to Origin, um, if if you just dig in with people and listen and learn, you know, my first thing is shut up. You know, I'm talking a lot now, but but when when we're with farmers, they've been doing it for so long. It's really interesting uh, to learn how how what they're doing is a. a how we arrive at the flavor, flavor profile that we do after roasting. And so I learn more on those trips than, you know, just about any other time about coffee. And how do they look at the craft compared to how we look at it, you know, whether you're working at a coffee shop or you're just an end consumer here in the States, like, do they look at it as much of an art as you talk about? I mean, you can hear the passion in your voice and the way you describe your experiences. I'm assuming that since this is their entire life, they probably feel very similar. Absolutely. And they're tr what they're trying to do right now is get more of their young people excited about coffee. So in a lot of places, and, and specifically in, in Terra Zoo, uh, at Cope Dota, uh, uh, they have a really nice program where uh, they're actually using the Barista Guild, you know, the Specialty Coffee Association Barista Guild, all, all of the uh, credentials and all of those things, the training programs, to train young people to be baristas and to get them to understand that the things that their family's done for the past three or four generations, uh, they can be very proud of, and it's not time to run out of town. You know, you know how that is. You know, when you're growing up, you're like, I'm getting out of here, mm -hmm. and and I think that what they're doing is they can have some uh, uh, retention in that, and because it's very family driven, they get a a, a lot of, of knowledge, institutional knowledge there. You know, where where you know someone's just been growing coffee for so long, they can pick out where the flaws are. They can they can help uh, in natural ways to, to keep pests away and they know how to space the trees and how to prune them to grow best and all of those things. And so they're, they're really spending a lot of money to get young people uh, kind of into coffee. And it's starting to work, which is really good. So to answer your question, I think that the passion's there, um, but there was a gap where young people were leaving for the city. And now what they're trying to do is retain those kids. Are they able to make a sustainable living off of it? I mean, is, is farming... Yes. Um, not everywhere, of course. And there are some places that are coming along. So, for example, uh, some folks will have two or three different crops in the land they own. and uh, But maybe their coffee... So, for example, the three bags I told you about earlier, that that's all they had left. It was only 20 bags to begin with. But it was so good. And so that farmer was not yet sustainable, but was working to it toward it and uh and it's one of those things where you know roasters have to give those folks a chance you know because some of the other farms we buy from they're set not not perfectly but they have things to work on like we all do um, but there are coffee growers out there farmers who are doing such awesome work they just need a little bit more uh, buy-in from us and investment so that they can become more sustainable and then it seems like from a lot of places you described, a lot of the areas that are strong coffee growers are off also like kind of their, their economic situation is maybe a little unstable or a little um, just not as solid as some of obviously more developed parts of the world. So as you guys are exchanging products from there, what does that process look like for you? Do you have to worry a lot about currency fluctuations and different tariffs that are coming in and out? I'm sure that coffee is affected by that all the time, I'm assuming. It is. However, we tend to work on what's called outright pricing which means we just agree to a price and that's it. And once again, it's not, it's, it's, it's not like going and buying soybean futures. It's actually just saying, I'm gonna give you X amount of dollars per pound, period. And then shipping's tacked onto that and 
you know, warehousing in the States, and then it gets to us. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's probably more beneficial for uh, the farmers than it would be for your team, wouldn't it? If you, cause I'm, I'm Not guessing. at all, because it's, it's guaranteeing a quality that we right. want. So we get that outright pricing, and so yes, of course it's good for them, but it's mm -hmm. good for us because we know what we're getting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess I was just thinking more in terms of like economically and fluctuation of currency. Like you're looking in more unstable areas, you're gonna see more fluctuation in their currency than you would in the dollar. All so. right, so yeah, so there's something tacked on, the, the coffee's traded on, on the NIBOT, uh, and uh, so there's border trade and and so when you look at that if you go online and you look at the NIBOT you'll see you know coffee's like trading for a dollar twenty something in the future a couple months out and what happens for the quality we buy that's for just average you know coffee for the coffee we buy there's a differential added it can be sometimes eight dollars uh, so when you see coffees in a shop for 30 bucks a pound you know that they didn't pay two dollars for it. it it's been it was very expensive um, but once again, so, so when that currency fluctuation takes place, which you'll see, dollar gets stronger, you know, other currencies get weaker, that price kind of benefits from that. But the differential just goes up. Because once again, a lot of those farms we buy from know that they can get that price because of the qualities there. I mean, so you're not dealing with unintelligent, but they understand market fluctuations and they know exactly oh what gosh. their product's worth. And, and they know, they know how, how disastrous it is to them. So. Uh, when the coffee market jumped to three dollars a pound, what ten years ago or whatever, it it was it was catastrophic for everybody. Roasters, it hurt it hurt everybody, and and uh, the only people who won were on Wall Street. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's a good point to kind of pivot to talk a little bit about Columbus. I know you know you've been doing business in Columbus a long time. What are some of the pros and cons doing business in the city? What do you like about it? Well, I, I love Columbus. I, th I think it's an amazing city. Uh, I think, as we mentioned earlier, it's it's a s small town in a sense of uh, people know each other. I, I think it's a pretty kind city. That's kind of the thing. I don't like the Midwestern nice label. I actually think it's pe people are good people, lots of good people. I bump into them. Uh, we have our challenges, you know, but uh, uh, I think it's a great city. Lot, the entrepreneurial spirit's amazing. When you look at all of the local products that are launched here, when you look at all of the uh, single to four or five store uh, local folks opening up and doing very well competing against national chains with you know, a thousand times the cash uh, to, to market their products. Uh, I, th I think that says something about the town. Cons, I, I think that you know, we, we have to really work hard. Uh, I think pay equity is an issue. Uh, it's good in this town, but it needs to get better. I, th I think you know, reducing a a economic insecurity because you know, that'll you know, once you fix some of that, take poverty and, and uh, people experiencing homelessness, you got to reduce that. Um, I, trains. <laughs> I would love to see transit in this town. Uh, so, so I think those are the things. But, the, you know, workforce housing, I think the city's working on a lot of those things. Uh, but as citizens, I think we also have to, to work hard. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit there about the pay equity situation and being um, his unacknowledgeable about economics as I am and own the very little amount. I, I would think that with the way the city is growing, we're probably going to see more disparity in those areas. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about it as well. I'm bringing it up because I want to stress my opinion on it. I would just think that as like economics are booming, real estate's been, we talked a little bit before the show, prices are going to continue to go up and our pay is probably not going to increase the rate that those real estate prices are increasing just historically looking at the way that's happened in the past. So it's like, we're probably just ahead for harder times and being a small business employer, like, do you feel similar? Do you think that that's going to uh, be? Oh, 100%. I, th I think that we really need to worry about, uh, first of all, I think that economic insecurity is, is a national issue. And it's something that I don't think Columbus can totally fix, but I think we can work in the right direction. Some of the, the low-hanging fruit on it are, you know, something the city's already done with the ch changing tax abatements to, and, you know, every time you get a tax abatement, you have to include a certain amount of workforce verified housing. So it's it's not low income housing at that point, which is important and we need to fix that. But it's a start. Because I really want uh, my team to be able to live where they work. I was lucky, I bought a house in Harrison West in the early 90s and it didn't cost a lot. So I was able to live there on a, on a very low wage. Uh, that's really not the case in that, that part of town anymore. 
especially for you guys. I mean, you guys are going into the heart of where these areas are blowing up and rental prices are skyrocketing right, right next to them. Like, but the truth is, is that Franklinton has uh, a lot of uh, uh, affordable housing that's going in there. And, and I think that the city is really interested in that. Um, obviously, there are some of us who wish the percentages were higher, but of course there are people who wish there were none. So, uh, so the compromise is good. Yeah, I think it's a tough problem centered around wage growth and, and especially at the bottom of, of the market where, you know, you're looking at these lower income jobs that just aren't growing at all and really stagnant. And I was reading in the Wall Street Journal today, they're starting to see some growth in that in Europe. And they still can't figure out why it is. So it's definitely a problem that I, I don't have a solution to, but I think um, we're working that direction. No, we're, our, we're both depending on you to have a solution there. Kind of that. <laughs> hey, you know, hey. And our, and our company's working really hard to make sure we're, we're growing our wages to get to uh, a living wage based on the MIT calculator. So Columbus is somewhere in the $12 range. And with tips, our team typically makes more than that, but we, we want to guarantee it. Uh, but it's going to take us a little time to get there. I, I was going to say, I think it's, it, as, uh, as a consumer, I think it's important to think about sustainable consuming right and it's a term i've heard on a podcast i like personally anybody who's listening money for the rest of us it's a great podcast but he talks a lot about thinking about the products you're consuming and and what they're doing you know if you're buying that really cheap made in china product not nothing against anything made in china but um you know if you're buying something really cheap well that's taking money away if you chose to spend it with somebody who's paying their team a living wage and you know investing in the community here locally your money's going to have a bigger impact, even though it's going to take more dollars out of your pocket. And that's precisely why you see the buy local campaigns. They're not just uh, touchy-feely. They actually have a real economic impact. I think, you know, what's unique about Columbus in general or, or in particular is that you probably find that more than you do in most of the larger cities because we're so community-driven and we're so focused on, you know, what can we do here? And, and we kind of almost feels like you got kind of this chip on your shoulder a little bit, you know, in general as a community that they're like, you know, I want Columbus to succeed because we're kind of underrated in some aspects. So I think that you see more people buy into that by local aspect too. But I think there is a hard aspect of us looking at the lifetime value of what we purchase. I think just as um, citizens of the United States, like growing up in the philosophies that we're often taught, it's not always to look at the lifetime value. It's about looking at the cost right now and, and how can I get by. Because not everybody's living with tons of disposable income. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Know? Um, but I want to continue that. We kind of went on a tangent just ran in our own <laughs> opinions for a second. I want to continue that on the topic with you guys. Um, talk a little bit about your culture. I think what's really cool about going into a stall or a cup of joe, you get a really unique um, atmosphere, and you meet people who are very similar in spirit, and they're always, like, excited to be there, and they passionate about what they do, similar to you. Um, how does that hiring process look like? What do you guys focus on with the team? And then maybe even carry that into what does the future look like for you guys? Well, I think it I – th I, th I think the – the thing I want to say is that I'm old, I'm 51, and I don't have a glory days attitude. Some a music attitude, but not in terms of my team or any of that. I worked with a ton of great people over the past 25 years, and, and they're, they're friends. But I will say the team I have right now and, and the, the, that we work together, uh, they're the best we've had ever. And I think one of the things that you know, I always talk to, to friends about this who, who are, run other businesses and stuff. I'm always like, why is this cliche about millennials or young people? It drives me crazy. Yes, uh, 20 years ago when folks showed up at our job, they probably had three or four jobs before. But they also didn't have 25 uh, uh, things to do in high school. And then, you know, trying to take tons of extracurricular things or graduate early and all of those things in college. So maybe they didn't have as much work experience, but what I find is if, if they really enjoy the business and, and we treat, them, treat each other with respect uh, and, and we're fair, all of a sudden they become so engaged in the product. I, I, I can tell you, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've walked into one of our shops and had somebody, they all know I don't like a coffee from Sumatra and I'm sorry to anybody who loves Sumatra, right? But I just don't. And I've had so many people do different types of brew methods like AeroPress or a pour over or a certain weight or a certain grind and fool me and go, did you like that? And I go, oh, it's a little, but it's pretty good. And they're like, that's Sumatra. I'm like, no way. So I, and, and what they do is they'll get online and look at YouTube videos. 
I have people offering suggestions to our training manual, suggestions to our menu, um, fully engaged in what we're doing. And, and to me, that's the most impressive part because when people are excited about what, what they're doing at their job, uh, everybody benefits. The customer enjoys it because they learn a lot. Uh, we get benefit from it because I'm not in front of the customer any, every day anymore. So I learn more from, from what the, uh, remember, don't forget where you came from. I learn more from the folks working in our stores than anything I could read online or anything like that because I get a real live frontline experience and they're, they're, they're excited to kind of chat with me about it. Yeah, and from there, kind of what's the future look like for your team? Uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but goals for expansion, goals for continuing forward the next five, 10 years. So we, we do want to expand. We want to create more opportunity for the folks who want to stay. And, and we've been able to do that. We have some people who have been with us for 15 or 20 years. Most of them did just about every job in the company. Um, you know, Tommy, our head roaster, and I were both delivery drivers in the old days. And, and Rich and, and, and Amy worked at the stores. And so when you, when you come to our, 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 our office, you're going to see a bunch of people who worked in the stores. And that, to me, makes me proud because uh, we have a way to provide opportunity for people who work with us. The other thing that's really cool is we'll have uh, a staff member at one store get promoted to manager for another store, and customers actually come and go, what happened? Like, oh, well, they're the manager of German Village now. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's a great thing to have. And uh, we hope to have that sort of sustainable growth. And I think that's a great place to pivot into our last question, Mark. So it's focused around the theme of our show, which is live uncomfortably. And it means more to me and Josh than just pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. But what do you think of when you hear the phrase and how does it apply to your life? Well, I think I have to go back to working with younger people. I think what they do is, is, is they kind of uh, drive a lot of what we're doing. Uh, uh, they're tuned into what's coming down the road. And that keeps me on my toes, keeps me focused so that I don't fall back into an old way of doing things. A really good example is we had a coffee in from a, a, a another roasting company out west. And uh, I looked at the coffee and it was roasted so light, uh, I just immediately uh, had uh, no wish to drink it. I was like, ah, oh, this looks barely roasted. And then, and everyone was listening to me complaining and, and our staff was saying, no, 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 man, you gotta try this. So then I tried it and I went, okay, we're buying this. Let's go, let's go get it. Because, and then I learned to just once again shut up and, and listen and find out what they're really trying to say about the idea or how they're brewing that coffee or what they think we should do as a company in the community. Those types of things are, are not, I guess they don't make me feel fully uncomfortable. They're just not in my zone all the time. And so therefore I have to be able to take a step back, shut up and listen. Yeah, I'd say that makes sense. I mean, there's a sense of uncomfortability where you find yourself trying to get outside of your natural norms or where you would tend to kind of sway to in certain situations. And I could definitely relate with you know, a situation where kind of you get kind of humbled, humbled in a minor sense in a way where you thought that you knew. Like, I, I thought I had strong convictions on this. Then all of a sudden I was like, wow, I was completely left field on that. And you kind of open your horizons. And That's exactly right. It's like trying something new. But it's something I thought I knew very well. <laughs> right. Well, Mark... Thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast today. We really enjoyed it. I think our listeners definitely got a lot out of it, so we appreciate it. Right on. Thank you. And Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Mark Swanson, president of Cup of Joe's and Stoff's Coffee Roasters here in Columbus. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Learned a lot about coffee. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26, 
We interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high-flying VC-backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open Voice Metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.